that I might be free because Jesus comes to save. Yes, he does. If you were turning your Bibles this morning to the book of John, the 12th chapter, verses 44 through 50. That's the book of John, the 12th chapter, verses 44 through verse 50. And if you found the sacred scripture, would you please acknowledge it by saying, he made me free. He sacrificed his life, amen. John 12, 44 through 50. And we ask that you would stand for the reading of God's inerrant, infallible word. John 12, 44 through 50. And the word of God says this. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge them, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a command. What to say? and what to speak. And I know that his command is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. You may be seated. We need to recognize this morning that Jesus comes to save. But who is this Jesus? You know, most people understand that Jesus was a man who lived in Israel approximately 2,000 years ago. And virtually every religion in the world views Jesus as a good teacher or a prophet. Now, while those things are most definitely true of Jesus, they do not begin to capture who Jesus truly is, nor does it explain why Jesus saves. Jesus, number one, is God in human form. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.14, and the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, 
and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is God who has come to the earth as a true human being and a true God. God became human in the person of Jesus Christ to save us, which really brings us to the next question. Jesus comes to save, but why do we need to be saved? The Bible declares clearly from Ecclesiastes 7 and 20, surely there is not a righteous man on the earth who does good and never sins. Romans 23, as you were, Romans 3:23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So, Pastor, tell me, what is sin? The Westminster Confession states that from all of eternity, God did freely and unchangeably ordain whatever comes to pass. According to this confession, the consequences of the fall and sin is that sinners are guilty before a holy God. Sinners are under the divine wrath and the curse of the law and are ultimately subject to spiritual death. To sin is to do something, whether in thought, in word, or in deed, that contradicts God's perfect and holy will and character. Because of our sin, that means that each and every one of us deserves judgment from God. John 3:36 says, "Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him." God is perfectly just, and he cannot allow sin to go unpunished. We serve a God that is infinite and eternal. And since all sin is ultimately against God, as the scripture tells us in Psalm 51, 1 through 4. Now, this is the psalm that David wrote when Nathaniel the prophet had told him about the affair that he knew that he had with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundance, mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. You know, only an infinite and eternal punishment is really sufficient for our sins. Eternal death is the only just punishment for our sins. That is why we need to be saved. Jesus comes to save, but pastor, how does Jesus save? Well, because we have sinned against an infinite God, either as a finite person if as a finite person and has sinned against an infinite God, either we must pay our sins or we need an infinite person to pay our sins. 
Jesus Christ paid our sins once and for all times. My brothers and sisters, there is no other option. Jesus saves us by dying in our place. It is in the person of Jesus Christ that God sacrificed himself on our behalf. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he, personal pronoun refers to God, made him, personal pronoun refers to Jesus. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, that in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. 1 John 2.2, he is the propitiation of our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What does it mean to propitiate our sins? That means that Jesus is able to satisfy the wrath of God that we might be forgiven. Jesus took the punishment that we deserve in order to save us from a horrible eternal destiny which was the just consequences of our sin. John 15, 14 through 16 says this, You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Jesus paid the penalty that we could have never paid. We were bankrupt in our sins and transgressions. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4 says it this way. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you receive, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins and according to the scriptures that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance to the scripture. Well, Pastor Jesus comes to save, but whom does he save? Jesus saves all who will accept and receive his gift of salvation. Jesus saves all who will fully place their trust in him and in his sacrifice alone for the payment of their sins. John chapter 3 verses 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. 
It was Jesus' sacrifice that was perfectly sufficient to pay our sins and the sins of all humanity. Jesus only saves those who personally accepts and receives his most precious gifts, salvation. If you now understand what it means that Jesus comes to save, then you want to trust in him as your personal savior. You want to make sure that you believe and that you understand and that you are able to communicate the following to your innermost being. God, I know that I am a sinner. I know because of my sin, I deserve your wrath. But even though I don't deserve it, I thank you for your loving kindness in providing a way out for me through your son, Jesus Christ. I stand before you, O oh God, right now saying that I believe that I'm a sinner and I also believe that Jesus died for my sins and I trust him and him alone. From this point forward, help me to live a life that honors you. Help me to live a life of gratitude for the salvation that you have provided. Thank you, O oh Lord, for saving me. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Give us the insight to appreciate the incredible sacrifice shown by your son and our savior on the cross that has redeemed us from the slavery of sin. Thank you for reaching into the burning fires of hell that awaited each and every one of us and snatching us like a branch out of that impending fire. Oh, God, you have truly saved us from your wrath to come through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Surely you have sent your son, Jesus Christ, to save. It is in the precious name of your son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we thank you for it all. And all God's children said, Amen. This morning, brothers and sisters, I want to speak to you for a couple of moments about the subject, Jesus comes to save. Look at your pewmate on the right or the left and just remind him or her that Jesus comes to save. Jesus comes to save those who believe in him and who see him. Jesus comes to save and not to judge. Jesus comes to save those and to give them eternal life. Jesus comes to save. In our passage this morning, we notice that John is placing incredible emphasis on the fact that the Father God himself stands behind Jesus and grants him the authority not only to be the object of our faith, but also one day to be our condemning judge. This stance should encourage us and to give the most serious consideration to the very claims of Jesus Christ. This passage really interjects urgency in our understanding that we cannot fall like those did last week to the blindness of unbelief. 
Spiritual blindness hinders true sight. Jesus comes to save those who see and believe him. Look at what it says in John 12, 44 through 45. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. Jesus has just told the crowd once again that you're going to have the light just a little longer. Here we see Jesus give his final public challenge to the crowds. Here we see Jesus give a skillful summary of the many strands of his teaching. Some have called this, as Dodd, the theologian, has the Kirima. The Kirima is the apostolic proclamation of the salvation through Christ Jesus our Lord. There are five points of this. Number one, that God promises, as he foretold the prophets, everything has been fulfilled through Jesus Christ. Secondly, God has exalted his son, Christ Jesus, to sit at his right hand. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit is present in the church and is a sign of Christ's present power and glory. Number four, Christ will come again, at which time the Messianic age will reach his fulfillment. And lastly, because all of this is true, we should repent of our sins, be baptized, and receive the Holy Spirit. You need to recognize that the idea here is that Jesus is God's agent. And that those who believe in Jesus actually believe in the one who sent Jesus, which is God. Look at John 13, 19 through 20. I'm telling you this now before it takes place. That when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one I sent. Luke 10, 16. The one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. You see this subordination that Christ has taken on under his father that personally guarantees that all who honor the son honor the father. Jesus has already told us earlier in John 6, 35 through 40. And turn there for a moment. Go to John 6, 35 through 40. Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. So, Pastor, what is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying that I am your daily bread. I am your very substance. I am what sustains you in this life. The more you eat of me, the more you fill up on me with the good things of the kingdom of God, I will sustain your entire life. 
I am your living water, and I have the ability to quench your thirst. I have the ability to hydrate your spirit. Then the scripture says, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Now, this is interesting because whenever you see Jesus speaking in the New Testament, you need to first figure out who is he addressing so you might understand what he's truly saying. Now, we know here when he says, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet not believe. He's not talking to us. He's not talking to those who have faith. Because Jesus already knows that we walk by faith and not by sight. But unbelievers walk by seeing because seeing is believing. So Jesus is addressing those that he knows that depend upon sight. And he's saying to them, you are being highly unreasonable because you depend upon sight. And even though I've showed you something, you still don't believe in me. It goes on to say here, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus here is proclaiming what? His mission of saving people. And that he's saying that he will not lose even one of the gifts that God has given him. Do you know that you are a gift from God to Jesus? That Jesus has a perfect record of saving? That he speaks to us in John 17 that he only lost one to fulfill the scripture, the son of pernition. So when John 10 tells us, John 10, 26 through 28, that no one can snatch us out of the Lord's hand, that same God that snatched us out of the fires of hell says that nobody will ever snatch us out of his hand. It goes on, for this is the will of my father. That everyone, now watch this, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son of God and believes him. Is that not exactly what we're talking about? You look, you see Jesus, and you believe in him, should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Didn't Jesus tell us later on, he says, that I don't judge them, but their unbelief will judge them when? On the last day, Jesus states here that everyone who sees him sees God. And because they see God, they have eternal life. What was it that Philip asked Jesus when he asked him to show him the Father? John 14, 9 through 10, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? 
the words that I say to you. I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Time and time and time again, Jesus confirms he's not doing his own will, but he's doing the will of the one that has sent him. So we recognize, as Dr. Don Carson says to us, so faith in Jesus is not faith merely in a human agent. Once more, a prophet. But faith in God is mediated by God's supreme self-disclosure. Jesus Christ is the Word incarnate, the God-man, his only unique son. Or else it is not faith at all. So we see how closely Jesus is identified with the Word and with the Father. To see Jesus is to see the Father who sent him. Because Jesus comes to save those who see and believe in him. And he comes to save and not to judge. Look at verse 46. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. So what do we have here, Pastor? We have God the Father's agent, God's Son, the one who reveals God, the one who had claimed back in John 8 and 12 that I am the light of the world. And now he talks about similarly being a light in darkness, but he wants us to recognize that people love darkness more than they love the light. Look at John 3, 19 through 21. And this is a judgment. Light has come into the world. And people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You know, even when we do good things, we have no ownership of them. It's only because we have submitted to the will of our Father. But Pastor, what, what, what is this darkness that Jesus is speaking about? Well, Jesus is speaking about spiritual darkness. Spiritual darkness is the state of a person who's living apart from Jesus. Back in Isaiah, Isaiah is prophesizing about the Messiah, and at the same time, he's speaking about the deep spiritual darkness that has enveloped the people. Isaiah 9 and 2 says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land, a deep darkness of light has dawned. Even when we go to New Testament, we see this verse repeated in Matthew uh, 4 and 16. And it says it this way. The people dwelling in the darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. John has already taught us that God is light. This is the message that we have heard from Jesus and we now declare to you that God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. 
So we're lying if we say we fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth. 1 John 1, 5 through 6. So spiritual darkness means not having fellowship with God through a relationship with Jesus Christ. The darkness of separation from God has, can only be overcome through a relationship with Christ Jesus. John 1, 4 through 5, in him was life, and the life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You know, from the moment that Adam and Eve sinned, we have lived as a humanity in a fallen state. We have lived in darkness. We have been separated from God. Until a person is reborn again of God's spirit, he and she lives in spiritual darkness. Sin darkens our understanding and destroys our spiritual sight. Sin cloaks us in darkness. Sin, if we could ever really recognize the sinfulness of sin, we would be justifiably afraid. We would understand, as it says in Proverbs 4.19, but the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. Acts 17, verses 27 through 28. Look how Luke says this. That they should seek God, perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not that far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own prophets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. If we continue to live in rebellion to God, rebellion to his will, we will continue to be in spiritual darkness. When the Lord Jesus commissioned Saul, who became Paul in Acts 26, 17 through 18, he says this, speaking to Paul, I am sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people who are set apart by faith in me. As saints of God, we have been set apart for his service. We should no longer be used by Satan. Ephesians 5 and 8 says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light. In the Lord, live as children of the light. You know the thing that grabs me about what Paul is saying there? He says you were once darkness. So he's saying there was nothing that you wouldn't do. 
He didn't say a little darkness. He said darkness. And then he turns right around and makes a contrast. But now you are light. Live as children of light. Because we've been delivered from the dominion, the domain of darkness, and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. And you know, when you look at how Judaism understood the character of um, our morality, it sees our morality reflected through our eyes. When you look at Matthew 6, 22 through 23, Look what he says about the moral condition of those who are unregenerated. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness. Does that tell us that we should not be better stewards of what we look at? That we should not have great discernment of what we perceive through the portals of our eyes? That we should not show some discipline in that? Because what we want to receive are those things of spiritual light, not those things that make us sick and make our eyes sick and gives darkness within our soul. We don't want a closed mind, a hardened heart. We don't want our minds to be full of darkness, and we don't want to wander away from the life that God is leading us toward. We don't want to be like those unbelievers that live in spiritual darkness, and the God, small g, of this world has blinded their eyes that they cannot see the glorious light of the gospel in Jesus Christ. The one who has the power to open the eyes of the blind is the one that can also bring each and every one of us out of spiritual darkness. No matter how deep the darkness. Jesus saved from the uttermost to the guttermost. He is the one that comes to separate us from sin. John continues that Jesus as well in this like and dark contrast uh, to invite belief by making darkness repulsive. But he also wants to stress that Jesus comes to save those and not to judge them. I think it's important to see what do we do with verses 42 and 43, men and women uh, who have this superficial faith that hears Jesus' words but does not keep them. Well, I think we find the answer in 47 and 48, John 12, 47 and 48. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world but to save it. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Jesus already insisted that the one who keeps his word will never taste death. Those who disobey his word 
will never see eternal life, but the wrath of God remains on them. This doesn't mean that Jesus came with the express purpose of bringing condemnation, even though from another perspective, judgment has been assigned to him. But the idea here is, I want you to hear it, the idea here is that the same message of the gospel that proclaims life and forgiveness to the believer at the same time condemns and places the wrath of God on the unbeliever. Paul says it clearly in Romans 2, 23 through 26. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine fair forbearance, he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's the standard of judgment that's going to be applied to those who don't hear God's word, don't see Jesus, don't believe in him, continue to reject him. Jesus says the very word that I have spoken them will condemn them on the last day. Do you understand that when he says the last day, he's talking about the last day? When all accounts are settled, where there will be no more doubt, you'll either be with the lambs or with the goats. You'll either be smoking or non-smoking. There won't be my bad and a second consideration. Because what you do right now lasts for eternity. God comes through Jesus Christ to save those to give them eternal life. Look at verses 49 through 50 of chapter 12. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say, what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I said, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. I think the reasons why these words are so threatening to unbelievers is because they are the words of God the Father himself. Many Jews saw the law of Moses as being really the source of life. And at that time, it was true. But you need look no farther than Luke 10, 25 through 29 to see what changes. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, 
you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Everyone is our neighbor. So we find out now that the law of Moses, a gracious gift at the time, is being replaced by a better, fully fulfilled grace that says, from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. These words are bound up in the very person, the ministry of Jesus Christ, who is that incarnate word who became flesh. All that Jesus says, all that Jesus does, it has all been commanded by the Father. Jesus never speaks from his own will, but only to do the will of his Father. And this command, which stands behind the revelation that Jesus is bringing, will lead to eternal life. And for Jesus, this command shapes and sanctions everything that he says and leads him to the cross. And Jesus goes confidently to the cross saying these words, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord because the Father has given me the authority to pick it up again. Jesus only says what the Father tells him because Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is God's self-expression. He lived an unqualified life of obedience. And now he's about to do the same by an unqualified obedience that the word made flesh may also become the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But pastor, before you close today, what is this eternal life? The Bible speaks of eternal life as referring to the gift of God that comes only through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This gift is in contrast to death, which is a natural result of sin. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. The gift of eternal life is for those who believe in Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. Eternal indicates a life that is perpetual, that goes on and on without end. But I think this is where we make our mistake. You know, this word, Ionios, which means eternal, carries an idea not just of quantity, but of quality. In fact, eternal life is really not associated with years at all. Listen to me here. Eternal life is independent of time. Eternal life can function outside and beyond time as well as within time. And because of that, eternal life is something that should not just be experienced when we die. The moment we accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we have eternal life. John 3, 36 says, whatever, or rather whoever, believes in the Son has eternal life. 
that is present tense. And even when you look at it in the Greek, it's present tense. When you look at John 5.24, it's present tense. When you look at John 6.47, it's present tense. Our future eternal life is here now. It's a not yet. John 17 and 3. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We need to recognize today that what we do as Christians on this side of eternity lasts for eternity. This life is your investment on eternity. On judgment day, Jesus will claim those that are his and he will turn away those false professors and say, I never knew you. But we want to be like Paul, who says in Philippians 3, 10 through 11, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his suffering, becoming like him in death, and so somehow obtaining to the resurrection from the dead. We want to be like Revelation 22, 1 through 2, where John sees a river flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, and on each side of the river stood the tree of life, and the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. Right now, every sinner is invited to know Jesus Christ and receive eternal life. Revelation twenty-two seventeen. let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wish to take the free gift of water come. Again, we need to understand what we do right now will last for eternity. For Christians, eternity is now how you serve Christ will stand for eternity. That will be your testimony. How you love Christ right now will stand as your testimony for eternity. How you give to the cause of Christ and your tithes and offerings will stand for eternity. They're not taking up tithes and offerings in heaven. Eternal life can function outside of time as well as within time. How can you know that you have eternal life? First of all, confessing your sins before a holy God, accepting God's provision of a Savior on your behalf. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Full stop. Because Jesus comes to save. You have everyone in the sound of my voice has the most gracious invitation and opportunity to deny themselves and to embrace a holy God because Jesus comes to save. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, touch that one that has still not accepted you fully. Bring them out of the darkness into your marvelous light. And then for those of us who have accepted you, let us accept you wholly. Let us recognize 
that this eternal life that we have been given operates right now. Let us live as a testimony to our eternity. Let us show faithfulness on this side of eternity. Let us show reverence on this side of eternity. Let us start preparing our hearts, our minds, and soul to reside with you forever. Let us not look to the things of this world, but let us be transformed by the renewing of our minds that we might do what is good, what is perfect, what is acceptable in your sight. It is in the precious name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who comes to save, that we ask it all. And all God's children said, Amen. his holy name. Thank God for his word today. Amen. And the truth of his word. Amen. Give God some praise. Amen. He deserves it. Amen. We praise and thank you.